Welcome to Oncofarm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I'm an associate professor of pharmacy practice and the supporting sponsor of Oncofarm, the Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy. Uh, it is, oh gosh, what, second or third week of September here in, in 2020. And if you're new to following the podcast uh, or to listening, we do a couple different things here at Oncofarm. Uh, we talk about new drug approvals and general updates in, in uh, the Hemonc world. Uh, we talk about foundations of Oncofarms. We talk about bread and butter agents and, and um, supportive care topics. The most recent one in that category would be the Alopecia podcast we had a few weeks ago. Uh, and we also like to talk about landmarks in Oncofarm, which are, are groundbreaking studies that pave the way uh, towards how we treat certain cancers to this day. And we're going to get back to our landmarks in Oncofarm series to talk about tax 327 or tax 327 which is docetaxel plus prednisone, or mitoxantrum plus prednisone for advanced prostate cancer, published by uh, Tannock and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2004, uh, so 16 years ago. So a couple things I always like to do uh, when I look at articles, do the uh, who, what, where, when, why, and how. So why was this study done? Well, at the time um, this study was done, enrollment was 2000 to 2002, there was not a drug that had been shown to improve overall survival in metastatic hormone refractory prostate cancer. So we know from some earlier studies that mitoxantrone um, had been shown to improve quality of life and decrease pain compared to a corticosteroid. Um, uh, mitoxantrone in combination with a corticosteroid improved quality of life and decreased pain compared to just a corticosteroid. Corticosteroids uh, maybe have some palliative effect uh, for bone pain, uh, maybe, but also can decrease uh, uh, extra um, testicular or adrenal production of, of testosterone. Um, so treatment at that time would have been androgen deprivation therapy, either orchiectomy, surgical castration, or medical castration with uh, a, a GnRH analog or LNRH analog like uh, like Luprolide. Uh, and then there was some debate at the time: should you add an anti-androgen, an early generation anti-androgen up front, like bicalutamide, with those patients? So. Most folks, uh, and the data were not clear, so most folks just got ADT, androgen deprivation therapy. And then at progression, they would add an anti-androgen, so then you'd add bicalutamide, and you might get some benefit. And then um, over time, the androgen receptor would develop resistance to the anti-androgen. And in some ways, that mechanism of resistance involved um, the androgen receptor mutating to where it received bicalutamide, the, the anti-androgen, not as an antagonist, but as an agonist. And therefore, as a result, when you withdrew the anti-androgen, sometimes the tumors would shrink, and that's called anti-androgen withdrawal. And we'll see that did play a role in um, uh, in the design of this study. Um, and I, th- I remember a physician I worked with always saying, like, a third of patients will have a response with anti-androgen withdrawal. I have no idea if that's true, but he always said it so often. He said it so- with such conviction uh, that I remember it and I guess believe it's true. Uh, and then after anti-androgen withdrawal, what you could do and by the way, during this whole time, you're, you're continuing your, your ADT. You're continuing your, your Luprolide, your GnRH agonist. Uh, as you would add maybe ketoconazole um, plus prednisone, and this would be um, a form of uh, further androgen deprivation therapy because you thought you were you know, suppressing all the testosterone production from the testes, but then you'd have this uh, increased production from the adrenal glands. And um, this made sense because ketoconazole is a... Uh, <laughs> promiscuous cytochrome P450 inhibitor, including this CYP17 that we know now that abiraterone inhibits. Uh, so therefore, you know, ketoconazole plus prednisone 
that ketoconazole would inhibit that uh, angiogenin production from the adrenal glands, and then you needed a little bit of prednisone there, you know, so you'd have some cortisol, um, and that's what you did. So uh, I still am uh, kind of uh, remember and hoard to this day uh, a fellow several years ago who wrote for ketoconazole, and this is in the pre-abiraterone era for metastatic prostate cancer, and got a call from the pharmacist saying, um, you know, this is, did you know this is an antifungal? It's not for prostate cancer, and just had to do the face palm total pharmacy fail. All right, so that's why this was done, because at the time for these metastatic patients we, that were hormone refractory, we didn't have a drug that actually improved survival, okay? So we had a, a nice palliative option like mitoxantrone. All right, so that's that's the why. So when was this? I already mentioned 2000, 2002 was accrual. This was senior year of high school for me and freshman year of college. So what was going on in the world then? Uh, the first Harry Potter was released. Season one of Survivor uh, was, uh, I think, 2001. The first Lord of the Rings movie was released during this time. Gas was $1.46 a gallon here uh, in the States on average, which is uh, kind of on par with what it was uh, in the early stage of the pandemic. Uh, this was the height of uh, Shrek mania, and therefore the height of the band's uh, Smash Mouth's power. Of course, 9-11 happened in 2001. Uh, Alicia Keys burst on the scene with Fallen. Uh, there were anthrax scares after 9-11 where people were, or maybe even before people were mailing suspicious packages that turned out to be have anthrax powder in it. And uh, one of my favorite TV series of all time debuted during this time, seasons one and two of West Wing were going on during this time. All right, so how did they do this? They took 1,000 patients, 1,000 guys with uh, metastatic um, prostate cancer that had progressed while on androgen deprivation therapy. And they randomized them one to one to one to one of three arms, either docetaxel 75 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks, docetaxel 30 milligrams per meter squared weekly times five weeks with a six week off, or mitoxantrin 12 milligrams per meter squared every three weeks. Everyone also received prednisone 5 milligrams BID, and they could receive uh, cytotoxic treatment for up to 10 cycles. Uh, and then, of course, all the patients on docetaxel got dex, uh, a dose of dexmedazone 12 hours before the dose, three hours before dose, and one hour before the dose of docetaxel, which uh, you may recognize is the scheme in the package insert. Um, the primary endpoint was overall survival, and key secondary endpoints included quality of life uh, based on the FACT-P scale, uh, PSA response, things like that, but then also uh, pain using something called the PPI, which was a pain inventory. Patients had a diary. They, they kept track of their pain every day. So uh, who? You know, 1,000 patients uh, with disease progression on ADT and then continuing ADT maintenance. Um, on average, uh, 68 years, about 30% had a Gleason score of 8 to 10, so very aggressive. 42% with a Gleason score of less than 7 uh, or less than or equal to 7, and 13% had a Konarovsky performance status of less than 70, basically 60 to 70, all right, which would be about an ECOG-2, so, which is a decent number of ECOG-2 for a clinical trial. Um, most had had at least two hormonal manipulations, and that includes anti-androgen withdrawal, which uh, they did. Um, you could not just stop your anti-androgen. You had to wait four to six weeks, depending on if you were on bicalutamide, you had to wait six weeks to see if there was an anti-androgen withdrawal response effect, so that would not blur the lines between a treatment effect with chemotherapy. Uh, no prior cytotoxic chemo. 90% had bone mets, which is what you would expect in a metastatic prostate cancer population. Uh, and then 22% had visceral mets, which maybe is a, is a bit is a bit low for if you looked at everybody. Um, but, you know, it certainly seems representative of the metastatic prostate cancer population. Um, so that's the, the, the why, the when, 
the how, where was this done? It was done all over. It was an international study in, in lots and lots of places. So what did they find? Well, from an efficacy standpoint, and this was at a median follow-up of 21 months, this publication at NEJM, uh, they showed a statistically significant improvement in overall survival in the docetaxel three-week arm compared to mitoxantrone, uh, p-value 0.009. But they did not show a significant improvement in overall survival in the weekly docetaxel arm, which is why we don't use weekly do docetaxel for prostate cancer. Uh, hazard ratio for death was 0.76, comfortable 0.62 to 0.94. Um, the median overall survival, if that helps you, was 18.9 uh, months with docetaxel every three weeks compared to 16.5 months with mitoxantrone. Uh, and they don't report this, they just report um, the median, but if you look at, you know, kind of a pseudo-landmark analysis of one-year overall survival, it looks like, if you just kind of line up the curves, about 75% of men were alive one year later in the docetaxel every three-week arm compared to 65% with mitoxantrone. So that'd be an absolute, you know, benefit of 10%, which is not, not nothing, that's the number you treat of 10 uh, to keep people alive for one year. Now the Kappa-Meyer curves uh, are perfectly overlapped for about the first seven, eight months, and then they start to separate. And when they separate, they stay parallel for the whole time. And then the docetaxel weekly arm is kind of in between there. Uh, now they do separate eight months, which makes sense because if you received all 10 cycles of chemo every three weeks, that would be at about seven and a half to eight months. So once, um, you know, once the, the chemo stopped, that's when people seem to start to, to progress. If you just, certainly lines up. Um, with that. So that was the efficacy, and at the time, this was the first drug to show an overall survival benefit in the metastatic setting for prostate cancer. And I remember when I was in my, my oncology residency training, my program director saying, uh, this is now you know the, a drug to, to have benefit in a second line setting after docetaxel was what everyone was trying, all the Everyone's trying to get a drug that would have benefit in a second-line setting because once you did that, maybe you could then uh, get it used off-label for other indications. And now, of course, after docetaxel, we then had cabazitaxel and abiraterone and enzalutamide and now apalutamide and darolutamide. So a lot of progress in the last 16 years uh, for metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. Uh, when we look at our quality of life benefit, uh, they actually looked at something called quality of life response, which they defined as a 16-point increase in their FACT-P scores. Uh, so 22% uh, of patients on docetaxel had a quality of life improvement compared to 13% with mitoxantrin, and that was statistically significant. Tumor responses were nil, almost 12% versus 7%. PSA responsive, uh, were PSA uh, improved by more than 50% was seen in 45 and 48% in both docetaxel arms, so really no difference there, and then 32% in the mitoxantrin arm. So again, you see, um, a nice illustration here that even the, the docetaxel weekly arm showed a really nice PSA response and did not translate to an overall survival benefit. The toxicities are what you would expect, but I'm going to go through them uh, because it provides some nice, uh, I think, uh, some context since docetaxel is a drug we use quite a bit, and we always use it weekly. Very rarely do you use every three-week docetaxel, uh, and we talk about one of those reasons in one of our landmark um, um, podcast uh, with AC followed by weekly paclitaxel. Uh, so grade 3 or 4 neutropenia occurred in 32% in the docetaxel 3-arm versus 22% with mitoxantrin. I'm going to, whenever I say docetaxel, it's going to be docetaxel every three week uh, unless I say otherwise. So a third of patients had an ANC less than 1,000 on docetaxel here. But febrile neutropenia, only 3%, so pretty rare. Uh, decrease in left, left ventricular injection fraction, 10% with docetaxel, which is probably reflective of the baseline age of patients. 
uh, versus 22% with mitoxantrone. And although as an anthracene dione, we don't think it causes as much cardiomyopathy as the anthracyclines, we do see a, a twofold increase in the rate of decreased uh, ejection fraction here with mitoxantrone. Alopecia, seen in two-thirds with docetaxel every three weeks, just half with weekly docetaxel. Nail change is seen in about a third. Diarrhea in about a third, which is not one you always think of with docetaxel. Only 10% of patients with mitoxantrone had some diarrhea. Taste changes in 18% with docetaxel. Stomatitis in 20%. Tearing in about, uh, uh, what's this, I can't remember, 18% uh, versus just 8% with mitoxantrone. Uh, peripheral edema in 19% versus uh, just 1% with mitoxantrone. Of course, that's the reason we give the dexamethasone premedication is to minimize the peripheral edema associated with docetaxel. So that's tax 327. Uh, and um, at the time this came out, you know, it became the standard of care. Uh, docetaxel was FDA approved in 2004 based on this paper um, and uh, became uh, a really, um, you know, a drug that we, you know, use uh, a lot. Uh, and then as we got the abiraterone and enzalutamide data, the initial data showing benefit in the same patient population were in patients who had already received docetaxel. So they would get docetaxel, then abi, then enza. And then we saw really compelling data that you could use abiraterone and enzalutamide pre-docetaxel and still show uh, great benefit from these patients. At that time, we thought, we're not going to use chemo anymore for these patients. Going away, going the way of the dodo. And then we get charted using docetaxel with ADT up front that showed a whopping improvement in, in overall survival, median overall, overall survival improvement of about 17 months uh, in those with high volume disease. But that's probably a subject for a future podcast. So thank you for, for listening. You can follow me on Twitter at FarmDeetNip. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at AncoFarmPod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter. Thank you.